0: Oh, if you only knew how I needed some kind of future Natura.
1: You have lived a lonely life?
0: Yes. Very lonely.
1: No more,
2: McCoy. Bridge to all decks. Incoming asteroid. Or is it an asteroid? Here on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance.
3: I'm Steve Morrison. I just discovered that... My house isn't really even a house. This office isn't an office. In fact, I'm just on a
2: spaceship heading somewhere and I don't even know where. And if you go to the roof of your house, you would touch the sky. That is Fright, everyone. We are covering For the World is Hollow, and I have touched the sky, an episode that I've always really, really liked. Quite didn't quite love, but for a third season episode, I think it is. I think it's pretty strong. What what have been your thoughts over these years about For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, which is the longest episode title in Star Trek history and from this point will be known as For the World is Hollow?
3: <laughs> well, speaking on For the World is Hollow, I'm going to use a word I rarely have used, which is I have always been ambivalent about this episode mm-hmm. and uh, kind of mixed feelings. And it's funny watching it this time. I didn't think about it before. So now I know why I was ambivalent. I think this is an extremely mixed episode with some great performances and interesting moments and a whole bunch of stuff that it's like, doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all. The more I I think about it.
2: Ambivalent is a, is a word that probably up until recently, I also would have used to describe for the world is hollow. But when I was rewatching it, my my appreciation of it went up a little bit, Steve, because of the conversation we just had recently on the empath. I agree. There's a real connection here. There's a there's an absolute connection. It's another episode that serves as a standout uh for DeForest Kelly, especially because we get so much more backstory into Dr. McCoy and sort of see the loneliness that he's sort of had for all these years, but also. Uh, even though DeForest Kelly has just been such a, you know, essential character, uh you know, McCoy being such an essential character to to Star Trek, I feel like when we see this different side of him in For The World Is Hollow, i made me sort of think that, you know, maybe maybe DeForest Kelly has been sort of underutilized because, you know, we're not we have not really gotten to see this side of him, but it is still an episode that I do like uh, another episode after the paradise syndrome that deals with an asteroid of sorts on a collision course with a planet. It's not an episode that's big on action, but it is a deeply effective personal episode. And uh, Catherine Woodville who plays Natira is really terrific, a strong character, a strong, complex woman. One of many, I have to say in the third season next to the Romulan commander uh, Miranda Jones, uh, Mara from uh, Day of the Dove, and uh, Vanna from from the Cloud Miners. Say what you like about season three. Say what you like about Fred Freiberger. I mean, and certainly there's a lot that was not said that was very complimentary about Fred Freiberger. But Steve, I would say that when it came to female writers and female guest stars, female characters, that the third season actually had a better track record than the first two probably put together. And it is because of a character like Natira of Yanata that makes me think, yeah, you know what? There is a lot to like and appreciate about season three. It's funny. I hadn't thought about it until you just said it, but but in fact, not just strong characters, but just central characters.
3: There are a lot of central character guest stars that are women because you also have Miramani, you have Jem that we just had in The Empath. You have a lot of Troyus. Like there's a lot of women that are really – central to the plot in the third season, which is very different from the first two.
2: For sure. It absolutely is. And it it, kind of gives season three... Uh, a, a different feel from, from the first two and not just because of the cinematography and the production design, but.
3: Uh, and I just flash forward to how season three ends and I, thinking yeah. about female characters. Oh, <laughs> God.
2: oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that is going to be an interesting episode to cover <laughs> for sure. And uh, I'm looking forward to, let's just say that Steve, you and I are both looking forward to taking our time before mm-hmm. we reach the notorious turnabout intruder which is sad for so many reasons but but we digress so for the world is hollow and i have touched the sky first aired on november 8th 1968 it was the 63rd episode to air and it was on november 8th that for the world is hollow had its only network showing so Mm. if you did not see it on november 8th on on NBC, you had to wait until syndication where you could watch it over and over and over again. The episode was filmed between August 13th and August 22nd. It was filmed over. Okay, so the schedule, the mandate, Steve, for the third season was shoot these episodes on budget or under budget in six days or else. Well, For the World is Hollow came in at seven and a half. Days. Oh, wow. It uh, was the 66th episode to film. So the per-episode budget, Steve, for Season 3 was about $178,000. Well, For the World is Hollow came in, the final cost, $201,371, making For the World is Hollow the most expensive episode of Season 3. So its director... Tony Leader, or Anton Leader is his real name, this was his one and only episode. Interesting that he got to finish it, whereas the previous episode, you know.
3: Literally going to say the same thing. It's like they just fired our dear friend and one of the great Star Trek directors of all time, Ralph Sinensky. And then they let this one go seven and a half days and way over budget? Come on.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and that that episode was only a half day uh, over schedule. But uh, t- originally, For the World is Hollow was supposed to be directed by John Meredith Lucas. But when he ran late on A land of Choice, and he went into overtime on the Enterprise incident, the bean counters at Paramount uh, said, nope, we're going to give this to to a fireman, which is basically someone who can bring the episode on schedule and on budget, but that did not work this time. But regardless, Tony Leader was a, a, a prominent director in film. He directed the movie version, uh, the famous movie version of *Children of the Damned*, which yeah. uh, actually served as an inspiration for uh, our favorite episode and *The Children Shall Lead*. Uh, but he also <laughs> he also directed uh, TV uh, episodes of TV for Perry Mason, The Twilight Zone, Sea Hunt, Rawhide. Gilligan's Island, Lost in Space, Ironside, and Hawaii 5 For the World is Hollow was written by Rick Villarts, who originally wanted the script editor job for the third season that eventually went to Arthur Singer. Uh, Rick Villarts had also written shows for Mr. District Attorney, Science Fiction Theater, Lassie, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. His first story outline for For the World is Hollow, came in on May 2nd, 1968. He proceeded to a second revised story outline on May 21st, then went all the way to a second revised second draft teleplay, which came in on July 31st. Arthur Singer did his rewrites on August 7th, 8th, and 9th, and then Fred Freiberger did page revisions on August 12th, 13th, and 14th. Would you like to know what was going on in the world
3: when they filmed this episode?
2: Let's hear. It's, uh, as you said, it's
3: filmed from August 13th through the 22nd. Um, I'm only really bringing this up. I said I wouldn't talk anymore about plane crashes. It's not a plane <laughs> crash. But it's just, again, a thing happened, is now happened twice, which is there was another helicopter crash flying from LAX, Los Angeles Airport, to Disneyland, killing 21 people. This is the second time this has happened in the last few months oh dear and i just it's so upsetting to me that there are a bunch of families on their way to disneyland Uh, oh that is that is depressing yes (laughs) Uh, on the 16th uh the u.s launched two different multiple warhead systems this is the height of the cold war you know we're trying to negotiate to reduce these terrible weapons with the soviet union but we're also developing technology that is really really scary Mm. on august 17th mia farrow Flew from New York City to El Paso, Texas, drove across the border to Juarez, and 30 minutes later, she had gotten her divorce from Frank Sinatra, who she had married a few months earlier.
2: Wow, that, that was a quick wedding, wasn't it? A quick marriage. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> um, on the 18th, uh, Brezhnev, head of the Soviet Union, uh, convenes an emergency meeting to discuss what's going on in Czechoslovakia. And two days later, the USSR invades Czechoslovakia. Mm. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was supposed to go to Moscow for a summit on arms control, and it was canceled because of the inv- invasion of Czechoslovakia. They also, at the same time, NASA announced its new schedule for the Apollo program, uh, including that Apollo Eleven will land on the moon.
2: Ooh, um, that's uh, so. So this is in uh, August of sixty-eight. So that was about 11 months away, right? Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. On the 22nd, the
3: 1968 Democratic National Convention opened in Chicago. Now, we're going to have a lot to talk about next week. (laughs) Yeah, we are. A whole bunch of stuff is going to happen. And then uh, here's some Beatles news I didn't know about, Uh uh, which is on the 22nd of August,
2: and it was about somebody quitting the Beatles. I never knew this. Okay. So this is in uh, 68, right? Yes. So they were, I'm going to say that they were recording back in the USSR and uh, Ringo got fed up with uh, a certain bass player named Paul McCartney and he quit the group for two weeks. And the Beatles went on to record back in the USSR without him. Paul McCartney played the drums on that track. Listen to remember that the next time you start the White Album, and uh, they they pleaded Paul particularly pleaded for him to come back. And when Paul when Ringo came back to the studio two weeks later, there were there were bouquets of flowers all over his drum kit. Scott. You continue to fulfill my faith in
3: you. <laughs> I, I, I I, was not sure that you would have that one. I, I doubt it. I should never have doubted. Of course, you had it. The one other thing I read is, uh, do you know what Ringo did
2: while he was away for those two weeks? He wrote uh, a song. He wrote, uh, oh, no, what was the song? Was it Don't Come Easy? Octopus's Garden. Octopus's Garden. Oh well, yeah. there you go. It's a good thing he took the time off. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Paul did him a favor.
3: There you go. <laughs> it's so funny having watched Get Back, and see, I, my admiration for Paul just went through the roof. Not that it already wasn't there, and I could see why you could get pretty irritated with Paul.
2: Yeah, it's it's sort of a, a, a sort of a, a this balance where where you see how he was very driven. Uh, he was definitely a driving force by the Beatles in it, but that also got to be irritating to the other, the other three. But when you're watching get back, you know, even, uh, look, oh, Paul has always been my favorite. He, you know, I was, I, I mean, you know, all my life I've been a McCartney and Wings fan, uh, before I was even a Beatles fan. But, but when you watch get back and you just see how he was really trying to hold the group together, um, despite just really, really extraordinary circumstances, my estimation and my appreciation for him went up and I did not think that was possible.
3: Yeah. And and it's funny. I, I, I really relate to Paul. I really after watching get back it's like I've been I've been Paul. I don't mean to compare myself in any way, but I've certainly been Paul in the feeling of I'm the one I got to keep this together. I got to keep this together and I know I've been Paul in irritating the people that I'm working with sometimes.
2: <laughs> for better or for worse, my for friend. For better or
3: for worse. Uh, let's get into for the world is hollow and I have
2: touched the sky. Let's do it. <laughs>
3: Start right in the midst of action. Music is tense. There are missiles towards coming towards the Enterprise. We're on red alert. Spock is sitting in the chair for a change, and in comes Kirk to get some information. And what we find out is these are very archaic missiles traveling at sublight speed. And Scotty says, "I and chemically fueled to boot."
2: I I love how Scotty like like zeroes in on the technical aspects. Because remember, in mm. uh, in Spock's brain. When, the, uh, when they approached the alien ship and it was uh, ion-powered and uh, Scotty goes, oh, they could teach us a thing or two. But, but this is a really strong opening for a teaser, showing the missiles approaching the Enterprise. And the music, which I forgot to mention, is, is, is tracked. No new music was recorded for this episode. In fact, I believe the only other time that new music was recorded for Star Trek was for Plato's stepchildren and 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 otherwise they just reused all the other music that they recorded but they used most of the music from from uh, the the session for Spock's brain and I think the music for season three is really great and they use just a great a great music cue to kick off the teaser for right for the world is Hollow.
3: yep and uh, we lock phasers on the missiles and we blow them up this was all Pretty easy. This wasn't a terribly big threat. We want to find out where those missiles came from. And then we cut. And this is this thing we talked about throughout, this screenwriting technique of enter late, leave early.
1: I am a nurse first, Dr. McCoy, and a member of the crew of the Enterprise Second.
0: You're excused. You may return to your quarters.
1: No, I'm sorry, doctor. I have called the captain, and I'll wait until he comes.
2: Then he kind of gets his composure.
0: Please, Christine. I promise you I'll give the captain a full report.
2: And Kirk has already walked into sickbay. He's seen the whole thing. And he's shocked. I mean, he's yeah. he's seen McCoy and Spock go at it, but he's never really seen McCoy go at it. After, you know, with with Chapel, even though she argues every little diagnosis with him.
0: <laughs> I've just completed the standard physical examinations for the entire crew. Excellent. What's the emergency? The crew is fit. I found nothing unusual, with one exception: serious, terminal. He says, oh, "Who is it?" He has one year to live at the most. Who is it? The ship's chief medical officer.
2: This is this is really where Shatner is really good. He, it's a real dial back.
0: I'll be most effective on the job in the time left if you'll keep this to yourself.
2: And what struck me more this time watching this, like I said after our recent deep dive on the empath, where you know we had such strong emotional reactions to it, is the look of pain on Kirk's face. And yeah. he just he just like looks down in defeat. Like we just saved this guy from the viands. We just talked the viands into saving McCoy and saving his life, putting our lives on the line. Spock's, Kirk's, even gems. And now to get past all that and he has this incurable disease called xenopolysithhemia. And it's just, he says, there's no cure. There's, you know, he's not gonna save him this time. And just the look on his face, the pain, is so much more poignant knowing that that what just what just happened and where they are now. I, I think
3: it's a great scene. I think it's a great teaser. I think it represents this thing we've been talking about throughout is the good episodes of Star Trek, the really good ones, have emotional content. Well, here is the emotional content. McCoy is going to die. And what I really like, too, is that he's not, he is in denial. He is not going to deal with this emotion. He didn't say, Jim, I'm dying. He didn't say, He he said the chief medical officer. And then he says in a very official sort of way, I'll be most effective on the job with the time left. If you keep this to yourself, he's he is not only is he not dealing with the emotions. He's telling his friend Kirk, please don't ask me about this. I'm not. I can't deal with it right. You know, like let's keep this totally on an official level. I think yeah. it's all really, really good.
2: It's a, it's very, very good. And also the thing, Steve, is that that because we've been covering this series chronologically in production order, and that we're seeing we're seeing a through line. To the evolution of the characters, but also, also most importantly, the evolution of the friendship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, which is why seeing that friendship put to the test in not just the empath, but also the Tholian web, where they're putting it all on the line to save right. Captain Kirk. Right. So now here we are, another episode that's deeply personal. I mean, of course, we know McCoy isn't really going to die, but still, it is the it, it is the, the the relationship that they have where. The deeper emotions that we feel, the sympathy that we feel and the empathy we feel for the for their for the relationship as a whole is much deeper now because it has been earned by the previous two and a half years of the series. You just made me think of a thing I want to point out quickly that people don't generally think about. People think when you're
3: watching a thing, you're watching a thing to find out what happens, which, of course, we are to some degree. But but, you know, you said, of course, we know that McCoy's not going to die. And that's true. And what's so interesting to me is that if knowing that it wasn't he wasn't going to die had any effect on us, we wouldn't watch these things over and over again and go through the same emotions over and over again. That's I mean, point. we you and I know what happens at the end of every episode of Star Trek and yet we are involved in the good ones just the way we were the
2: first time. And I think the reason for that, Steve, is it's not about the destination; it's about the journey. It is absolutely about the journey. It is seeing the way these three characters, in particular, like work it out, help each other out, have each other's backs, strengthen their relationship. And those three guys—I mean, the actors—Shatner, Nimoy, and D. Kelly—their chemistry was just incredibly powerful and dynamic and fantastic so it's the journey of seeing them seeing them go through this together uh, especially as this episode progresses at the beginning of act one the first thing we hear is a captain's log and in this captain's
3: log he says that he's informed starfleet of mccoy's illness
2: and that he has requested an immediate replacement an immediate replacement who do you think that replacement could possibly be Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. Dr. Mbenga? I don't know. Who? Well, it could be Dr. Mbenga, maybe Dr. Boyce. Oh is Dr. still Boyce. Sure. around. You know, he's familiar with the Enterprise having served under uh, Captain Pike. But uh just some things to think about. I wonder who they would have gotten to replace Dr. McCoy if in fact McCoy did not make it.
3: Um, I just think it's weird because the last thing McCoy said was I can keep serving on the enterprise you know, until I die. Mm -hmm, Right. Um, And this seems just strangely callous of Kirk to just immediately request a replacement. That just seems weird to me.
2: It it does see, I I did notice that too. I did think about that too in the back of my head, but at the same time, Kirk is the captain of a starship with 428 people and he has to look out and do his best for his
3: crew. I get that, but I just don't feel like we, this is what I feel like in a lot of this episode, which is that there's a really interesting thing and it's even done really well, but then they don't really deal with it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just like, it, it's kind of just happens and then we move on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, fair, fair, absolutely fair. Because the decision to call for a replacement for one of his best friends and the guy that saved his life uncounted times, that's a big decision. But it all happens just off camera. He just says, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. The Enterprise is looking for where those missiles came from. And what
2: we come across is a big, huge rock in space. Okay, so, so a couple things to point out, Steve, is that when you're watching the opening moments of For the World is Hollow, you'll notice you see Captain Kirk exit the turbo lift, and he, he goes to talk to Spock, and then Scotty, uh, you know, standing right in the back. And you don't hear what they're saying, but what you are seeing is a lift of the exact same scene that opened up the teaser, Oh. Where Kirk walked onto the bridge, and they're talking about the missiles, and Scotty mentions uh, it's chemi- chemically fueled to boot. But what had the reason for this is because the scene that we saw in the beginning of the teaser, where the Enterprise fires its phasers on the missiles, that scene was supposed to open Act One. All the oh. teaser, all the teaser was supposed to be was supposed to open with McCoy and Chapel arguing, and Kirk walking in and being told that McCoy is dying. That was the teaser. And Fred Freiberger actually made the right move of moving the bit with the missiles from the beginning of act one to the beginning of the teaser to give the teaser a much, much bigger push. And I think that while it's like two different stories going on there, it still does make the teaser much more effective. And all those teasers, most of them anyway, were really, really good. So- so, but anyway, then they needed the coverage to open up Act right. so they just lifted the scene. That's fascinating, and
3: what's so funny is it just it just flows perfectly into this thing that we've been talking about: of good Star Trek episodes have emotional content. We just talked about that, and an adventure story, and an interesting science fiction ideas. By if you had just had the teaser as it was written, you would have had emotional content, but not the adventure. Right, and so right. what they did was make them have at least those two, and now we're heading towards the interesting science fiction idea, which is the there's this asteroid, and that's where the missiles came from, and then they realize as they look at it that the asteroid is not in orbit around anything;
2: it's going through this system on its own power. It's a spaceship, and uh, that the footage that they used of the asteroid. For the original visual effects were clearly lifted from the visual effects for the paradise syndrome right and in an earlier versions of for the world is hollow it was not mccoy who falls ill it was scotty who falls mm. ill with an irreversible red blood cell condition and scotty is played much angrier in this earlier earlier version than he ever was in an episode of the original series and it's actually Scotty who repairs Yonada's guidance system and gets it back on course. But with his second draft script, the Larts changed changed it from Scotty to McCoy, who dies who's dying of the disease. But Scotty will still get his love story to come in the lights of Zitar.
3: Yes, he will. <laughs>
2: <laughs> For better or
3: worse. <laughs> um, anyway, they, they and then they do some scans and they see no life forms, despite the fact that it's got a breathable atmosphere in, in this hollow spaceship. And, and then they plot its course out and find out this rock is going to run right into an inhabited planet.
2: Darren 5, uh, uh, population 3,724,000,000, uh, which is interesting because when this episode was filmed, In uh, August of 1968, uh, 3,724,000,000 was not that far off from the population of the Earth. Uh, Of course, now that's doubled because we're at 7 billion, but it's going to impact Darren 5 in 396 days. So the Enterprise is on a mission now to stop that from happening. And
3: so Kirk and Spock are heading into the transporter room. It's going to be just the two of them who are beaming down. And then who is waiting for them in the transporter room but Dr. McCoy?
0: Dr. McCoy, Mr. Spock and I will handle this. Without me, Jim, you'd never find your way back.
2: Now, why aren't there any security guards? Well, because they didn't have the budget for all those extras. Uh, And what's interesting is that never before have we seen Kirk say, no, you know what, Doc? You know, Spock and I will handle this. You don't have to be here. But Spock didn't pick up on that. I'm surprised that Spock didn't notice. Like, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> have the, the same thought, this. they yeah. should have cut to Spock.
3: There should be a shot of his reaction to that moment, and there's not.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And McCoy convinces him to go. And and this is one of the weird inconsistencies is that McCoy said, "I'm going to be healthy right up until the end. I could just keep working." But then that's not what we see in the course of this episode, and that's not how Kirk treats him.
2: Right, right, right. Well, well, it's not how Kirk treats him. Of course, that's totally understandable. Kirk has been really looking out for his friend. But uh, when McCoy falls under physical duress, then it's the ravages of the disease that yeah. are preventing him from recovering as fast as Spock and Kirk.
3: We're down on the quote unquote surface of the planet. And that's what they think. They say you'd swear we were on the surface of a planet. Uh, and
2: they start looking around and they find these big, huge tubes sticking out of the ground. So so this scene on the surface of Yonada was filmed on stage 10 on the Paramount lot. And the cylinder entrances that you see, uh, the two closest to us were built, you know, life size. But the two behind them were, were built uh, much, much smaller. And the camera was placed strategically to sort of give it like a, 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 an illusion of distance. But uh, this scene in particular was filmed on stage 10, where the next scene was filmed across town. And we'll get to that in a moment.
3: Mm. That technique, by the way, is called forced perspective. And it's used constantly in set design to make things seem bigger or farther away than they actually are.
2: Mm, Interesting.
3: A good example of it, by the way, is go to Disneyland or Disney World. They use it all the time. The castles, the buildings, all of them look taller than they really are because, like, if you're looking at a three-story building, each story the windows are smaller, so it seems oh. as if they look farther away than they really are.
2: Interesting. That's why uh, uh, the the castle looks uh, bigger it looks, than it
3: really is. It looks bigger than it really is. It's called forced perspective. Um, so, uh, but then those tubes open up, and a bunch of dudes come out, and a and a woman, and we're right into the middle of a fight which our guys lose.
2: Our guys lose pretty bad. I mean, even Spock, there's a moment where Spock is like trying to, you know, give the guy the neck pinch, and someone comes behind him with the sword and knocks him out. And during the fight, McCoy just stands up quickly and talk about love at first sight. He locks eyes with this woman, and she locks eyes back with him. There's clearly an attraction, something about the other person right then and there, just completely locks. So, But McCoy, is uh, his attention is distracted, and then he gets knocked out. And this is where the, the ravages of the xenopolysothemia prevents him from coming to as fast as Kirk and Spock. But the woman, who we will find out her name is Natira, is played by Catherine Woodville, who was on TV shows like The Avengers, The Saint, It Takes a Thief, Mannix, the Rockford Files, and Days of Our Lives. But it was during the, the Avengers where she met her first husband, Patrick McNee, and they were married from 1965 to 1969. But it was her third husband who she married from 1979 to his death in 2006. Her third her third husband was Eddie Albert. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think she's really good, and I think she holds a lot of power. Yep. Um. And and you know, feels like the leader of this planet. A hundred percent.
1: These are weapons.
0: I saw it. Weapons, communication devices. Let me go to my friend.
3: He's concerned about McCoy, who's who you know gets up and seems okay. And she introduces herself as N'atira, the high priestess of the people, and says, "Welcome to the world of Yonada."
2: Kirk says, uh, "I can't say I think much of your welcome." <laughs> and she's like. Take them. <laughs> yeah,
3: um, And then we get a really weird shot through the slats of the spiral staircase that I'm sure is the same spiral staircase we saw in the empath.
2: You're correct. <laughs> um,
3: and uh, and we come into Yonada. I think the costumes are fairly silly uh, for some of them. Natira's the is, is a typical, you know. Bill
2: Tice, yeah. Bill
3: Tice, sexy costume. And we walk to the entrance of the room of the Oracle where we see these Diamond shaped plaques with some kind of writing on them, she gestures the doors open, we walk in she kneels on this in front of this altar uh they force our guys to also kneel and then you know there's some things there are conventions in film, and sometimes there you accept them and sometimes you don't if this one of the conventions is is that I could be three feet away from you and whisper and, or even speak in a relatively normal voice and for some reason you don't hear anything I'm saying.
0: Yeah, you right. Know. right. <laughs> she called this the world. These people don't know they're on a spaceship. Well,
3: everybody should be able to hear that. There are guards standing like right above them who poke them to get them to
2: stop talking. But no one actually can hear it. So this is the Oracle Room, which was designed by Matt Jeffries, you know, the set designer, the, the legendary set designer for Star Trek. And he, he actually said that next to Trelane's lair from the Squire of Gothos... The Temple in the Oracle Room from For the World is Hollow is one of his very favorite sets that he designed, which is interesting. So I mentioned how when they were on the surface of Yonada, Steve, that was filmed Hmm. on stage 10 on the Paramount line. Well, all of the underground scenes like this one were actually filmed across town in Culver City at Culver Studios on stage eight. And the reason I bring that up is because Culver Studios is where they shot the cage and where no man has gone before mm. Before they moved to Desilu. Oh, interesting. That's very interesting. Very. You know, interesting. Wait, wait, why did they go over to Culver? I don't understand. They needed the room and they didn't have it on the Paramount lot. Well,
3: so the, now we got several reasons why they went over budget. Because if you're exactly. shooting on someone else's lot, you're renting space. And they have to get there and bring all the it, wardrobe it, and the actors. Yep, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, I also, by the way, I also really like this set of the Oracle room. I like it. And I like it better than Trelane's. I think it's a cooler space for me. Yeah.
1: Oh, oracle of the people, most perfect and wise. Strangers have come to our world. They bear instruments we do not understand.
3: She asks who they are, and Kirk stands. We get some
2: intros. I love this. He 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 stands up and you know, with his with his back arch looking to the horizon, Shatner. Kirk just gives that usual uh, Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise and she says why are you here? And Kirk goes, we come in friendship and then there is what sounds like a a thunder uh, mm-hmm. a, a thunderclap and you hear this voice say
1: Then learn what it means to be our enemy before you learn what it means to be our friend
2: Then there's this zap that looks really painful that hits Kirk, Spock, and McCoy all at the same time, and they just fall to the ground. Now, did you know, Steve, that the voice of the Oracle is none other than James Doohan? That was my guess.
3: Yes, I didn't know because I, I want to be surprised when we do these episodes, but I <laughs> yeah. kind of guessed that that was who that was. Yeah. Mm-mm. Uh, which, by the way, is a pretty brutal way to, wel- to to bring people. I mean, they just beamed down to this place. They got beat up. They got brought, brought to the Oracle Room, and then immediately, you know, Shocked to winch, you know, really powerfully to knocked out. This is not a very welcoming place, Yonada.
2: It's also, I I think, and I never thought about this before. Honestly, Steve, there have been so many times where I would watch a new episode to prep for our next podcast Mm -hmm. for this, for Enterprise Incidents. And I have like this thought that I never thought about so many times, which is obviously... Uh, for no question, one of the one of the great rewards of doing this, but the oracle clearly it is a mechanical thing. Yeah. It is a computer, and it made me sort of tie the oracle of Unada to Landrew yeah Val from the Apple. Oh, I hadn't thought about Val. I've always thought about
3: Landrew because uh because in the end we're going to do exactly what we did with Lander which is go through from one room where we're seeing the oracle to the computer room behind the stage yeah you know so i've always thought about that i hadn't thought about vol but this is this is this area where we're reusing ideas in ways that I, that w- where in the first season, I felt like we were exploring ideas in different ways. And now I feel like we're kind of just reusing ideas.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, and, and the thing is where, where the reveal of Landrew, even though we know it's coming, you know, the reveal is so dramatic, whereas the reveal, I don't think of the Oracle that we certainly know, I mean, is, is a, is a computer. And, you know, in the beginning of, of Return of the Archons, you know, we see the image, of Landru, and we we're not sure yet we think it's actually a a flesh and blood character but but i don't know the 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 impact the takeaway the reveal sort of the shock of the oracle is not nearly as effective as return of the archons
3: well and and this is the thing there's so many things in this episode that just don't quite make sense (laughs) you know like why are they doing that why is the oracle doing this i why the feeling yeah same thing I don't understand exactly what's going on.
2: Like, like for example, I, I mean, I agree with you. Like, I thought about that. That's another thing I just never really thought. Of. I just sort of would watch the episode and just go with it. But like, why won't the Oracle tell them that they're on a a, a
3: spaceship? That's the biggest like, one. Well, why I don't they? Why don't they know? So, so right. you know, spoiler alert: ten thousand years ago, the system was blowing up, and they loaded a whole bunch of people on an escape spaceship that looks like an asteroid to go to a new planet. Right? That's the plot. Yeah. Well, those people that got on the spaceship, they knew they
2: were getting on a spaceship, right? Right, right. Why do these people no longer know it? And why is that a problem? Well, well, okay, so on one hand... Since they've been on this journey for ten thousand years, yes, maybe through generations of saying "Don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody," and then before you know it, you get to just a whole new generation that does not know that they're on a spaceship. But regardless, but why? What they do, But what <laughs> they do know, but like like the Tira knows that they are on a journey, and when yes. they reach, they're 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 going to reach their destination. Well, how are they on a journey? They they must be on a st- spaceship if they're on a journey. It just. Well, and it's not just that they don't know. It's that
3: you will get killed if you ask any questions about this is really serious. Yeah, why? Why? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make a lick of sense. To I me. agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think one of the weirdest, and I'm assuming this is just Bill Shatner's ego, but the fact that he has to be the last person knocked out and the first person who wakes up in everything is just dumb. And it's and, it, and now that we've seen it many many times, whether it was Spock's brain or and everything, and it's like, look, Spock would wake up first. He's the most resistant. He's the toughest. True. Mm-hmm. You know, this just doesn't make sense. But needless to say, Kirk is already awake. He wakes Spock up. McCoy uh, is still out. And Kirk is like slapping his face, trying to wake him up.
0: <laughs> the doctor must have received an excessively large electrical shock. No, that's not it. Nothing else could have caused this, Captain. At least, nothing that has happened here.
3: After thinking, and I do like that he has to think about this a bit.
0: You're right, Spock. The shock is serious because of McCoy's weakened condition. May I ask, precisely what is troubling the doctor? I don't think he would have told you himself, but I think you should know now. It's xenopolisothemia.
2: So McCoy, at the end of the teaser, says, I'll be most effective on the job if you keep this to yourself. So when Captain's Lock, he tells Starfleet. And now, you know, they yeah. just beam over to it, And now he's telling Spock. So, I, I mean, I get that Kirk's heart is in the right place, but maybe not the best, best person to tell a secret to.
3: Well, I think that at this point, our lives are on jeopardy. It, he has to tell Spock. I yeah, totally sure. agree with that. This one works for me. The Starfleet one is weird, you know. Um, and McCoy wakes up. And, you know, is obviously in pain. He asks if Spock's all right because he's trying to play it off because he doesn't know that Spock knows
0: at this point. Right. And he says, oh, Oracle really got to me. I must be especially susceptible to its magic spells.
2: And as he says that, as he's saying the word magic spells, he looks down to his left arm and he sees that Spock is still comforting him, holding his arm. He looks at Spock's hand. He looks back at Spock. Spock is just looking directly at him. McCoy turns to Kirk. And Kirk just, again, restrained. Spock knows. I just think that this is such a beautiful scene. And again, it is an emotion that is earned because of everything the three of them have been through up to this point. So when you see all these moments where Spock and McCoy are going at it, usually because McCoy is going after Spock, like he did in the Tholian web and, and in bread and circuses and in the paradise syndrome and, and, you know, game Star to Triskelion and so on and so on. And here you see Spock really comforting him. So through all that, those battles and arguments, you could see that Spock really cares about McCoy. And I think that, there's no words from Spock. It's the way you see it and then you feel it without the words.
3: This is why I mean say this is a mixed episode for me. I think this moment is fantastic. Great. I, I I I think it's so good. And cause it's all done without words, and because, you know, it's the Spock knows. And then McCoy looks at Spock and knows that he knows because Spock is comforting. And I, by the way, this is where I was thinking about the empath, because it's in the empath where Spock is the doctor for wounded McCoy. And McCoy says, you have a good bedside manner. And he is helping him up in the same way as he is here. And so I think this moment is great. And it really shows like beneath all of the fighting and bickering and all that stuff. Mm. They love each other, Yeah, you know, and it totally,
0: totally works.
3: There are other elements of this episode that I've like, oh, I don't what the hell's going on.
2: You know, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree.
0: <laughs> Informing these people they are on a ship may be in violation of the Prime Directive of Starfleet
3: Command. <laughs> and he says, "Well, the people of Unata may be changed by the knowledge, but it's better than exterminating them." You know, or the three billion people on you know Darren Five. Both are quite logical. <laughs> and, and the thing, is, this is where this is what I think the Prime Directive should be, which is we don't want to interfere.
2: But if everyone's going to die, like, we should interfere. you yeah. know. and look, look, Kirk makes his point in both cases, you know, bo- unless we do something, the people of Unada will die, and the people of Darren Five will die, so that is, uh, the prime directive does not apply here.
3: But here's what's weird about this episode, is we go, okay, we should tell the people, we're going to tell the people. They don't. That's not what they do. They don't tell
2: anybody for the whole, until we're at the very end of the episode. Well, I, I think yeah, I I see that, but at, at the same time I feel like well what is he going to get up on a a, a pedestal and say ladies and gentlemen I have an announcement to make. You know, I mean well, the
3: Tira is going to I mean we got we, we got a scene before this, but after the what happens next, the is going to come in, he could tell
2: her. Right, but there's also, you know, there are there are there is a massive population on Yanada and you know, you don't want to you don't want to cause a uh uh a, a a, a catastrophe, uh, uh, you know, create a panic until you have to. So, so I get he's, 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 you know, he still has 396 days before it reaches Darren well, five. So like, okay, so what's the best way to go about doing this? That's, that's where I think Kirk's head is. Well, if they said that I would go, okay, but they don't
3: <laughs> say that he doesn't right. say, he doesn't say, you know, Captain. I think informing that people could violate the prime directive. And he goes, "You're right. Let's do this slowly. We don't want to cause a panic." He right. says, mm-hmm. "We need to inform them." Mm-hmm. You know, and what they also... And well, let's. We'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. <laughs> because what happens right now is this little old man comes in, gentlemen.
0: I believe we have a visitor.
2: This little man should look really familiar because not only was he uh, in Return of the Archons, another episode that deals with a computer controlling a society but he was also the name uh, the head of the expedition leader who was really an illusion in the cage the uh, gentleman's name is john lormer but so between the cage return of the archons and technically the menagerie part one uh he was in quite a few episodes of the original series
3: yeah um and the first thing he does is give them something that will help with the pain that they got from being punished by the oracle and as he starts to talk there's a music sting, and he's hit with some pain. So they say, also.
2: And you just see that wince. Yep. Uh, and and so let me ask you a question, Steve. This this guy has obviously lived a very long, full life on Yanada, mm-hmm. and here are these three strangers. Why does he choose to sort of let down his guard with these three strangers? Well, um,
3: I think the first reason is that we want someone to say the title of the episode. (laughs) Yeah. So he comes out to say the title of the episode. Um, I mean, I, I think it's motivatable. I think the idea that you had some profound experience as a young man, and you've never been able to talk about it to anybody because you would die. Right. And finally, there are people who might understand because they come from somewhere else and aren't part of this culture, that there would be a strong pull to say the thing that you've never spoken aloud. I I can see that as a motivation.
0: Many years ago
2: I climbed the mountains even though it is forbidden. Another wince, yep. Mm -hmm.
0: Why is it forbidden? I'm not sure. But things are not as they teach us.
3: And it gets another hit and then says scared for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. You know, i made jokes about it and sometimes I really don't like when they use a title in the episode. Mm-hmm. I like this one.
2: Yeah. I think that his delivery, John Lormer's yeah. delivery of that, uh, the desperation of it. And, and I know I asked the question like, why is he telling Kirk Spock McCoy about this? They're strangers. But I think it's because they are strangers I think it's because he sees that they are not of this world and maybe, maybe they can help. But what struck me watching it this time, Steve, is this line things are not as they teach us. Mm. When was this episode filmed? August of 1968. Yeah. What was going on?
3: Uh, Civil rights movement, Vietnam.
2: Um, all sorts of stuff is going on. Exactly, and so much of what the government was telling us, especially when it came to Vietnam, was not as they taught us. And it was right around this point when the truth actually came out about Vietnam that it was a that it was not a winnable situation. But at this point, to hear those words, they, things are not as they teach us. When I was rewatching this again, this was another moment where. That line just kind of came and went all those years, decades, watching this episode, but not this time. Well, this
3: goes to, again, why this is a mixed episode. Because part of this episode, you could say, is about a conspiracy to keep the people in the dark about what reality is. And I think you're absolutely right. And I even today, there are people fighting about what should be taught in schools and what the truth is. And I'm don't, not taking any sides on which one I think is correct. And I actually think truth is a complicated thing. But, like, we don't deal with that in this episode. Like, mm-hmm. like there's no Natira going, oh, no, I've been lied to my entire life. What is reality? We don't deal with that. That's not really what the episode is about. But in this moment, that's profoundly what it's about. The, well, the Oracle
2: kills this old man because he knows the truth. But what happens you know? when Natira starts to believe the truth towards the end of this episode she starts feeling the pain from the yep. Oracle because she is starting to question the Oracle about the truth. So there is a there is a lot more to this episode that I ever considered when it comes to questioning authority, questioning the truth, wanting to know the truth when you think that you are being lied to. So there is definitely a, a subtlety, subtlety there that that I never <laughs> it was so subtle I never gave it a second thought, but not well, that. But that's the problem. I mean, that's why
3: it's not, that's why it doesn't work. If it's so subtle that you didn't give it a second thought until you, a Star Trek expert, watched (laughs) it seriously decades after many, many times, you go, well, then it didn't work. You know what I mean? That's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. But he goes down. He dies. We see something red glowing at his temple.
0: He said it was forbidden to climb the mountains. Yes, of course it is. Because if you did, you'd touch the sky and find out that you were living on a big ball. Not a planet, but a spaceship. And that knowledge seems to be forbidden.
3: And that is when Natira enters and sees the old man, asks what happened. Here's another thing that's really good, which is the thing we talked about of Kirk in the really good episodes is his speed in adjusting to a situation and lying. He doesn't say, this guy said the world is hollow and I touched the sky. He says, I don't know, he just came in and screamed and died. Forgive
1: him, for he was an old man. And old men are sometimes foolish, but it is written that those of the people who sin or speak evil shall be punished.
3: So she knows that he did something that caused him to get killed. Um, And they take him away and in come some women with trays and wine and food. And McCoy sits up and she looks at him and says,
1: you do not seem well. It is distressing to me.
3: And this is this thing that you mentioned from one look at that first time they saw each other, that it's love at first sight and everything follows from there. And it doesn't make any sense. I don't, I I think and it's so weird because I think the actors do a great job Mm -hmm. and I think some of the lines are great, but Mm -hmm. I do not buy that this love at first sight thing that's happening.
2: Okay. You know, I, I want to agree with you because as much as I was very moved by their relationship after the love of first sight thing yeah i did not buy the actual exactly. love of first sight mo- moment uh i don't know it just didn't ring true i mean i get it was a dramatic way it was in the middle of a fight you know and he gets knocked out because he's distracted when he sees her and i i think that most actors are 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 terrific like as, as the episode progresses but i didn't buy it. it didn't it felt contrived
3: Well, it's the difference between what you're trying to tell the audience to believe, they fall in love at first sight, and what actually is going on. What actually is going on is that you showed up and for no reason at all, this woman ordered her men to beat you up, then took you to this oracle where you were shocked to within an inch of your life. Then the next time you see her, she walks in, sees a dead old man on the floor and says he was foolish.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Like, yeah. why are you falling in love with this woman? She doesn't seem, <laughs> this doesn't seem like a nice situation.
1: It is the will of the Oracle that you now be treated as honored guests. It's like,
3: oh, thanks, oh, Oracle. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Kirk picks up on it just from these couple of looks and the fact that she was distressed, that McCoy didn't feel well.
0: You seem to be the special favorite. Indeed, doctor. The young lady did show a marked preference for your company.
3: I'm like, did she? I think that's not, I think you're reading a lot of stuff into that. But I do like McCoy saying,
0: well, now nobody can blame her for that. can? Personally, I find the lady's taste questionable, but she obviously prefers you and you obviously don't seem to mind.
2: So is he joking or is he jealous?
3: (laughs) Uh, I think a little from column a and a little from column B. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, if you could arrange to be alone with the young lady, Spark and I would be left alone to find the power controls of this world.
3: And this is where I go, they literally just said we should tell them that they're on a spaceship. But now they're saying, you distract her while we sneak around and get to the power,
0: you know, the control room. We are very interested in your world.
1: That pleases us.
0: Good. Then you wouldn't mind if we looked around.
1: Not at all. The people know of you now. <clears throat>
3: So McCoy coughs now. Did he actually cough, or is that him trying to be weaker in order to say that he has to stay so he can spend time with her?
2: Great question. I always saw it that he actually really did cough and then used the moment uh, sure. to say, I'll stay behind while you guys go snoop around and see what you can find. Because when, when she says to him, Are you well enough to go? And he goes, Perhaps not, you know, Kirk and Spock kind of look at him and go, Good job. Yeah.
3: And so she's like, yeah, so you guys go walk around and he and I will sit together and talk.
0: Thank you. And thank you for taking care of Dr. McCoy.
1: Not at all. We shall make him well. We shall make him well.
2: So what does she mean by that? Because the inflection of those words, we shall make him well, not, well, we'll take care of him, but we shall make him well, goes a lot further than we'll comfort him. So is she already know that there are these archives with the Oracle mm. that could possibly cure him. And that is why they'll make him well, because he looks back at her and she gives him she goes from like giving him like a an admirable, loving look to like like one of like it's all seriousness now. Like we will make you well. There's something there.
3: I So. I never interpreted it because she doesn't know that he's has a fatal disease yet. So I never interpreted it that way. Mm. I always interpreted it as I am so into you right now. <laughs> I will make you well. You oh, know, that, I see. Okay. That's I how it. I always All thought.
2: Right.
3: Uh-huh. Um, which again doesn't make sense to me that this love at first sight thing.
0: How did the Oracle punish the old man?
1: I cannot tell you now.
0: There is some way the Oracle knows what you say, isn't it?
1: What we say? What do we think?
3: And I'm kind of going, there's a lot of times in Star Trek where there's people that aren't there punishing you for things you're saying or thinking, all the way back to the cage, but also gamesters of Triskelion. Like, there's this is sort of this thing that we've gone through many times.
1: I did not know you would be hurt so badly.
0: Sorry. I suppose we had to learn the power of the Oracle.
3: By the way, one thing I noticed here, uh, I've noticed throughout this episode, the lighting in general is much brighter much less contrast than we had when Jerry Finnerman was there, except this shot of her right here where it looks like old Jerry Finnerman's lots of shadows and contrast. It's very dramatic lighting. It's but most of the episodes, not like that.
2: Well, well, from the point that Finnerman leaves at the end of the empath, well, I mean, you know, even, even the Tholian web, you could see that Al Francis, the new cinematographer was trying to just sort of like, you know, it it ain't broke. I'm not going to bother fixing it yet. But but from that point forward, with this episode and certainly the rest of the series, the lighting is very different. Everything is much, much brighter. The dramatic lighting that Finnerman did for those two and a half years, that which gave Star Trek its unique look and was mm-hmm. almost like a character unto itself, is gone. And you know, over the years when people have said, oh, I wish Star Trek would have continued on for a fourth year, I'm glad it didn't. Because if it did, the quality... Would have been if they were lucky. It would have matched the third season, but since the quality of the third season was not like the first two, all that would have done was further dilute the series. Mm. You know that you have two great seasons, like season one and season two, and a you know an okay season like season three, and a season that is better than people give it credit for, but still not as great as it is. I'm glad that they did not do a fourth season because I'll take two great seasons and one. Yeah, a decent one over another season that would have been just decent because like the lighting wasn't as good or the budget wasn't as good. And, you know, but the, you're right about the lighting. It does look brighter, except when they shoot Natira. And then she says, and this is where it's just like,
1: really? Is there a woman for you? No, there is. Does McCoy find me attractive?
0: Oh, yes. Yes, I do.
3: And, I, and my note here is, this is totally unbelievable. Agreed.
2: Even though both actors are really good. That's why I went with it. I
1: hope you men of space, of, of other worlds, hold truth as dear as we do. We do. And I'm
3: thinking, you're lying to her right now. <laughs> like, Kirk <laughs> and Spock, you know, are sneaking around trying to mess around with the control room. You you're lying to her at this moment.
1: I wish you to stay here Onionada, as my mate.
3: Whoa. (laughs) My my line here, my note
2: here is, whoa, slow your roll, babe. (laughs) Yeah. Like the the look that he gives her is like in shock. Like, are you really, are you really professing your love and, and telling me to stay here as your mate? Like he can't believe it. Well, and here's what's so weird. I see no reason for him to be attractive attracted to
3: her other than that she's a beautiful woman and i see absolutely even less reason for her to be attracted to him even though i love dr mccoy she doesn't know anything about dr mccoy that's right you you know if she had seen him do something mccoy like if he had shown his personality to her in any way maybe i would buy this yeah (laughs) but that being said the lines are great
0: but we're strangers to each other
1: It is not that the nature of men and women, that the pleasure is in the learning of each other.
2: I love that. That's a nice line. Yeah. It's such a conflicting feeling watching the scene because it really requires a big leap of faith to accept it. But then again, when the performances of these actors and what they're saying, the dialogue is really quite lovely. So you go, okay, I buy it now.
3: I'm going to call this episode. It's like a roller coaster for me of, That's really good. Oh, I don't get what the hell's happening. No, that's really good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And speaking of which, we're going to go down on the roller coaster again, because this next scene with Kirk and Spock is totally useless as they're walking through the corridors talking about that they're on a spaceship, which we already knew, and how many generations have been on this spaceship. And the one thing about what I will call a pretty useless scene, watch it again and watch the extras in the background because they are terrible. uh, You
2: know what? I I always notice the uh, extras behind them just kind of like looking at them. I'll have to go back and rewatch it. Are they like just not convincing in their curiosity?
3: They they were either. Yeah, they they were given really bad directions, I think, because Uh. it looks like they're kind of don't know where they're going or why they're there. And they're sort of looking at Kirk and Spock, but not talking. And it's just all it just doesn't look natural. Oh, okay. <laughs> bad, bad extras. You should talk to my partner on the cinephiles, John Roca. That is like a hobby of his, of pointing <laughs> out bad extras. Uh, it's a very strange skill. But we're back to Natira and McCoy.
1: The people, in the fullness of time, will reach a new world. Rich, green, lovely to the eyes, and of a goodness that will fill the hearts of the people with tears of joy.
3: This is what you said before. They know
2: they're going somewhere. Why don't they know they're on a spaceship? Right. I mean, th- don't they think that, well, if we're in motion and we're not orbiting a planet, where, th- where the hell's the light and the warmth coming from? Right. Well, where are we going? How, <laughs> how can one world go to another world? Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I agree. <laughs> well,
0: if you only knew how I needed some kind of future Natura.
1: You have lived a lonely life?
0: Yes. Very lonely.
2: DeForce Kelly is great in that yes, moment. Yes. He's great in this moment, despite just the the sort of uh go with it that you have to take to, to buy into all this. But we are now hearing how lonely it has been for McCoy after we've seen how lonely it has been for Kirk and Spock. Well the it, but- the, the burden of command, obviously, uh keeping Kirk you know, away from from a real true relationship, and of course, you know Spock's loneliness being uh, the only person of his kind on the Enterprise, and and you know trying to you know stay true to his Vulcan half, uh, you know creating, and of, of course seeing that loneliness in the naked time and. And, you know, hearing Spock as uh, uh, Collis, Ambassador Collis, and Is There in Truth, No Beauty, talk about how lonely you are. And now you're hearing how lonely McCoy is. Like loneliness is a common theme for our three biggest uh, people on Star Trek.
3: And here's why I think this, even though it works in the moment, because DeForest Kelly delivers the line beautifully and it's a great moment, this is why this doesn't work for me, which is that, did you how early in Star Trek did you know that Kirk is dealing with the pressure of command and his inability to have love and relationships and sacrifices he made? How early in Star Trek did you know that was a thing? Uh,
2: I would say I was pretty in tune to that from a very young age when I was just kind of getting into so, it.
3: I don't mean early in your age. I mean how early in the production of Star Trek? What episode by which at what episode did oh, you get that? The Naked Time. Definitely by the Naked Time. Sure. And maybe even a little <laughs> bit earlier, you know? Um, and maybe even a little bit with An Enemy Within. Maybe a little, you know what I mean? Like, we, we got that right away. How early in watching Star Trek, not your age, but the show, uh, did you get that there was a conflict between Spock's emotional half and his logical half? Also, the Naked Time. Definitely the Naked Time, if not earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that by the time you get to This Side of Paradise or City on the Edge of Forever, or the Paradise Syndrome, where we're going to deal with that thing, it's really, really well established. Mm-hmm. It's also earned. It's really earned so that when we have the relationship with Miramani or we have the relationship in this side of Paradise, I have deep, powerful, emotional connection to, to dealing with this thing. How early in watching Star Trek did you realize that McCoy was a very lonely person? The man trap. Really? Well, maybe, yeah, sure. I, I, uh, yes. Uh, you know what? Okay. You're right. I'm going to take most of what I said back. <laughs> that is in the man trap. The man trap is not a very good episode of Star Trek. Right. And yeah. I never think of McCoy other than the man trap in this moment as lonely.
2: Okay. That's the The, problem, the, the conflicts
3: think... with, yeah, the, the Kirk and Spock conflicts, the internal
2: conflicts, they are built in and really powerful. And they're also, they're also touched upon uh, routinely throughout the series. Whereas, you know, The Man Trap may have been the sixth episode to film, but it was the first episode to air. And with the first episode that aired on September 8th, 1966, you're seeing that McCoy's lonely and he's, you know, uh, falling back in love with Nancy uh, because he's lonely and they had a thing in the past. But then up until this moment now with For the World is Hollow. You're not, you don't hear about McCoy's loneliness, You don't nope. see any of it. It's like, it's there at the very beginning. And then it's like put on the back burner until, until for the world is hollow. And then are we ever going to see it again? We would have seen it again. We oh. would have seen it again because, okay, just jumping ahead. When we get to the way to Eden, mm. which is not a good episode, the original story for the way to Eden, this uh, hippie that comes on the enterprise is named Joanna, and Joanna is McCoy's daughter, and she Mm. falls in love with Captain Kirk. That story was written by DC Fontana, but then after the Enterprise incident, DC Fontana said, okay, bye. I don't like the way things are going on Star Trek. So that episode was completely rewritten as The Way to Eden. The McCoy's Mm -hmm. daughter angle was taken out of it completely, but if that episode had gone forward as it was intended to, as McCoy's daughter, you would have seen another aspect of McCoy's loneliness because of his estrangement with his daughter. Well, that, that is fascinating. I, and and this is the thing is like, we have
3: this great moment where he says very lonely. Hmm. We never really We don't even deal with it that much in this episode. Right. That's just beyond the roller coaster. Wow. Great moment. What is that about? You know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: There's something I need to tell you.
1: There is nothing you need to say, but there is. Then tell me if the telling is such a need great
3: lines
2: yep love it
1: yeah
3: i i I, I totally get why you're into this interior person now
2: yeah yeah and he says uh he says uh uh uh, i have a disease for which there is no cure i have one year to live and she i I love the way again i'm on the roller
3: coaster this i love she says
1: (laughs) until i saw you there was nothing in my heart it sustained my life but nothing more now it sings I could be happy to have that feeling for a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever the creators hold in store for us.
3: Lovely romantic lines. Yep. But as romantic as Miramani in the Paradise Syndrome, the difference is, what the hell about McCoy is making her heart sing? (laughs) What has he done to give her this reaction? There's nothing, you know?
2: Right, right. Uh, and the music builds, I, I think it's, it's the music from The Empath. It is the music from The Empath. And just like it did in The Empath, the use of that score, of those music cues from The Empath and For the World is Hollow, it, especially because there is a connection between the emotions we feel in The Empath to the emotions we feel in For the World is Hollow. Uh, it, it gets me all the time, I got to say, that yeah. music. It really sure. does. beautiful me. music. Yep. We're at the outside
3: of the Oracle room where there are those diamond-shaped panels with writing on them.
0: The writing is definitely Fabrini, Captain. I recognize it. Fabrini. Didn't the Fabrini son go nova and destroy its planets? Yes. Toward the end, the Fabrini people lived underground, as these people do, to protect themselves.
2: Wait, how do you know what happened on some strange planet 10,000 years ago that was destroyed? Well, Spock knows everything. I mean, okay. he's he's always correcting. You know, he knows what Quadra is, you know, down to sure. the T. But... The 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 trope of a of a star going nova, uh, you know we we heard about that happening in uh, the empath, and now they're talking about this history of the Fabrini. You know their son went nova, and then we're going to hear about uh, uh, Beta Niobe from from uh, all our yesterdays is about to go nova, and that's why everyone from sarpedon went into its past. Anyway,
3: Spock does some gestures, and the doors open, and they go inside, and apparently the Oracle doesn't know they're there. Even though the Oracle can read everybody's minds and see everything that's going on everywhere else, it seems strange that it doesn't know when someone walks into its room.
2: And that is because it was when the Tira leaned on the podium, that activated the Oracle. And that's when the Oracle noticed everything that was going on. So it's almost like an on switch. So because they're not standing on there, they uh, they, they didn't activate the Oracle. That's why they can kind of move around the room and not be detected. I, I get it. I think it's thin, but I get it.
3: Understand.
1: <laughs> I
2: understand. I
3: you know, for the oracle that can read people's minds and hear everything everybody says in this whole place, it seems strange that there there's an on switch in its room where it actually is. Interesting point. Yep. Yeah. Um, but they're looking around and they see this other kind of uh obelisk and on it is a diagram of the solar system and that is the Fabrini solar system.
2: Eight planets and a star and that's where they learn that this spaceship has been in flight for 10,000 years. And uh, they're snooping around, and then they hear the door open, and Natira walks in. So Kirk and Spock take cover, Mm -hmm. and they hear a conversation between Natira and the Oracle. Where she kneels on the thing, which we thought was the on switch, but the Oracle still hasn't noticed
3: Kirk and Spock yet. Because now it doesn't notice them until she stands up. Right. Um, Which, again, means it's just inconsistent. And she just says that. I want to, the other of these strangers here, there's one called McCoy, and I want to marry him.
0: <laughs> he must become one of the people, worship the creators, and agree to the insertion of the instrument of obedience.
1: He will be told what must be done. And
3: she smiles, stands up, starts to exit, and as she heads out, now Kirk and Spock get hit with that electricity
2: again. And they stay zapped for quite some time. Yep. Uh, the Oracle is not happy at all. Fool. You think we are children?
1: You think you can do as you please, commit whatever offense amuses you?
3: And that is the end of Act Two.
2: So, the whole idea of an interstellar arc has been used so many times throughout science fiction. Going back to the 1941 short story called Interstellar Arc for the magazine Universe. It's something that was also used in a Doctor Who episode called The Ark in Space. There was a series called the Star Lost on it. you know even Battlestar Galactica in some ways is about a, a, sure. a ragtag arc going to find Earth um Wally Wow that was good. <laughs> yeah you like that um, yeah no I think it's a uh, it's 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 a really cool concept an interstellar sure. ark. I mean of course it goes back to the bible with you know the ark, uh, Noah's ark.
0: What are you going to do to my friends? They entered the article room. And the punishment is death.
1: Yes. I can make no other decision.
3: I'm surprised that she's not angry at McCoy. He was distracting her and he knew that they were off doing this thing.
2: Well, yeah, she doesn't know that he was deliberately distracting her. I mean, I think maybe she doesn't realize that.
3: Well, it just all goes to the, she's just 100% in love with McCoy, knows exactly what (laughs) kind of person he is. Rather than this is a stranger she doesn't know anything about.
0: They acted out of ignorance, Natara.
3: And McCoy doesn't say, hey, you're on a spaceship and you're all about to die in a year and you're going to kill 5 billion people. That's why they were doing what they were doing. Right. Which would be kind of good extenuating circumstances.
2: (laughs) yeah, definitely would be.
3: (laughs) And he kind of begs for her to let them go, to go against the Oracle, essentially.
0: How do you think I'd feel if I stayed here with a chance to be happy for the first time in my life, but knowing my friends had died.
2: I think that his, that this, this exchange their, their performances are so good and you've got the, you know, the empath music cue playing again, yep. George, George Dunning's score. Uh, I just think it's a, it's an effective scene in a, in a rollercoaster episode. I totally agree. And I think the line is great, but I also go like, it's not just that my
3: friends have died. It's you're going to kill my friends. Right. Mm-hmm. I, am I really going to marry the person who killed, ordered the execution of my two best friends? For sure. Yep. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> we're not really dealing with that. This I will do for
1: McCoy, for our happiness and future.
3: We're back to the surface, and McCoy brings them their communicators and their phasers.
0: You're returning with us. No, I'm not. Bones, this isn't a planet, it's a spaceship. On a collision course with Darren 5. I'm on a kind of a collision course myself, Joe.
2: This is a really good exchange. I think that the, the performances of Shatner and D. Kelly are right on point. Nothing dramatic, nothing over the top, Uh, just totally restrained and subtle. It's a really good scene. It it is. And he says,
0: Bones, if we can't correct the course of this ship, we'll have to blast it out of space.
3: Which means he's saying, I'm going to have to kill you and everybody on this ship. So maybe you shouldn't stay here. (laughs) Right. And again, and that's a really good sort of ticking clock that we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. And And they don't really deal with it. That's not. You're right. R- really, part of the episode
2: uh, It's not instilled into the episode enough to really like give it like uh, added stakes. And the choice of Kirk thinking I have
3: to kill my best one of my best friends to save five billion people that's you're not right. really in
2: the episode. That's you know? right. You're right.
0: Lock in on our signal. Aye, Captain. Then transport Mister. Spock and myself immediately. But Captain, what
2: about Doctor McCoy? And the way that McCoy slowly backs up. Mm. His way of saying, don't even try it. And Kirk goes, he's staying. is a communicator. They beam off. The camera zooms in on McCoy's face, where I always thought he was thinking in that moment, did I do the right thing? I I totally agree.
3: We're in the Oracle room, and this is the ritual that's going to make McCoy one of the people of Unada. And uh, Natira has this thing in one of her hands, asks for his consent. He agrees. And she puts her hands on his two temples and then
1: You are now one with my people.
3: He takes their hand, they kneel, and we have a wedding ceremony. We are now of one mind.
1: One heart.
3: One life and they kiss. By the way, I don't think DeForest Kelly's the best stage kisser. Yeah, I maybe. Don't either. <laughs> you know what? And the thing is, supporting actors don't get asked to kiss people very often.
2: i I think it's a great moment because this is the only time in star trek that we got to see mccoy kiss a woman romantically you know you you didn't even see him do that in the man trap with nancy uh but yeah yeah it's not like his strength let's just say that and and
3: who knows maybe he maybe the actors hated each other i mean you know (laughs) we don't know um But uh, the Oracle says to teach him what he must know to be one of the people. And so she gets up, walks over to that monolith we looked at, or obelisk we looked at before, touches a couple of planets, and it opens up. And inside is a big white book.
2: A big white book that looks a whole lot like the uh, Chicago mobs of the 20s from a piece of the action, uh, only it's turned around. (laughs) So you don't see that. But this is the book of the people, and it's to be read when they reach their new world. Again, they reach their new world because this thing is in motion, but yet somehow there's light and warmth, but they're not supposed to know they're on a spaceship. Now, is,
3: is she going to read any of this book right now? No. Then why open up? up? This is what makes no sense. So teach him what it means to be one of the people. Okay, I'll go over. I'll open up a thing with a book in it, but I can't read this book. <laughs> Like,
2: why? Like so she's just showing him the book, but she's not gonna read anything from it? Yeah. It's all it's Yeah, that's weird. It's all weird. Don't you long to know its secrets?
1: No. It is enough for me to know that we shall understand all when we reach our home.
2: Okay, well, that's putting a lot of faith in the unknown, but okay.
3: (laughs) Um, so we are back on the Enterprise. We're on a parallel course with Yonata, and we are Contacting Starfleet,
0: Captain Kirk. I sympathize with your wish to stay, but I hope you recognize the necessity that you continue your mission at once.
2: Do you know does that guy look familiar? No, who is it? uh His name is Byron Morrow. He played the admiral in *A Mock Time*. Ah, uh, that wouldn't let. Uh, that was like, no, you gotta continue on yep. to you know the the function for the Federation. Don't go to Vulcan. And now he's basically you know kind of being an, uh, you know, an a-hole, telling Kirk uh, the Yanada uh, matter is now a Starfleet uh, command situation. And Kirk kind of resists, and he says,
0: Perhaps I haven't made myself clear. Let me restate it. You have been relieved of all responsibility for the asteroid ship Yonada. Starfleet command will take care of the situation.
3: What does that mean, Starfleet command will take care of the situation?
2: Well, it means if they can't figure out how to fix the thing, which I don't see how they're going to do that unless they go there, they're gonna blow it out of the stars yeah
3: and again this is we never return to it this is a great ticking clock like we're dispatching three Constitution class starships to blow it up you go away now right that <laughs> that would be great but that's not what goes on
2: oh I see what you're saying yeah like what if what if they instead of having 396 days to what if to you had two days. situation what if you had like yeah two because you know three three starships are on their way to destroy destroy the asteroid and killing mccoy killing mccoy and everyone else aboard right yeah. now the enterprise really has to get this thing back on course or fix the problem before all these people die yeah that would have absolutely see that's the steve morris rewrite that would have really elevated this episode
3: well thank you sir um and, and then the next moment i believe it is time to move on and I just wrote bullshit. So McCoy's going to die on this ship. this ship. This whole spaceship with thousands of people is going to be destroyed by Starfleet Command, or it's going to crash into Darren 5, and and we're just going to – the Enterprise is just going to go, oh, well.
2: I, I, oh, and let's not forget the fact that Kirk is being ordered to uh, drop the situation because it's now a Starfleet matter. Like. Do you realize who you're talking to? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is his, one of his best friends is going to die and thousands of people. Like, I do not believe
3: we're moving on. And I do not believe
2: in the no-win scenario.
3: Of course not. Um, and But then we hear from Ahura that uh, McCoy is calling. He's on his
0: communicator and says... We may be able to get these people back on course. You've located the controls? No, but I've seen the book that contains all the knowledge of the creators. And if you... <laughs>
3: And then he gets hit by the pain. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. If you can get to it, spot. Take out the information. Where is it? Boles, ah! ah! are you all right?
2: And he passes out from the pain. And Natira enters, and she is looking down, and you can see the light from beneath McCoy's uh, skin on his forehead where the uh, instrument of obedience is causing the excruciating pain. Well, and we
3: can hear Kirk still talking over the communicator, and she looks at the communicator, and I think this, again, this is a great moment. The guy I just married, the moment after I married him, essentially betrayed me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and they're still in contact. But we never really deal with the betrayal. But that's a real betrayal that McCoy just did, you
2: know. And he just uh, had this freaking instrument of beating it, implanted in his head, and McCoy saw – what happens yeah. because of when the old guy died and he still went ahead and started blabbing about the book and the getting yeah. the ship on course and all that stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies where I can see why this is a roller coaster for you.
3: Yeah. Uh, but that is the end of Act 3. We come right back in the same place in Act 4. She's kneeling with McCoy, takes his hand. Kirk and Spock beam down. They run to him and she is furious with them.
1: You are killers of your friend.
3: And he pulls her away, and Spock does something that removes that little instrument of obedience from his temple. Yep.
1: He is not part of our people. You've released him from his vow of obedience.
0: We have freedom from the cruelty of your oracle.
3: It's also like you're no longer part of the body. It's also like not being part of the spores, you know?
2: Definitely the of the body, because that's a mechanical influence.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, but she, I mean, essentially, they ended the marriage by taking that thing out, I think. And McCoy comes around and they ask him about the book. And she's like, you can't tell them. And he says, it's in the Oracle room.
1: You will never see the book. It is sacrilege. God!
3: God! God! And Kirk grabs her and he has her hand on the- hand on her mouth, and he brings her behind the screen, which is really weird staging, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, like, why is he pulling her aside, <laughs> like, it's all the creepy. way over there? I mean,
0: yeah, it seems weird. Ten thousand years ago, a son was dying, and with it, it's world. It's the world you see on the plaque in the room of the Oracle.
1: That is the world of which Yonada is a part.
0: No. It is the world of your ancestors, your Creators. It no longer exists.
1: You are mad. No, I'm not. Now listen to me. Hear me
0: out. And he grabs her
3: and shakes her like pretty hard. Yeah. I think yeah. he's doing a terrible job of explaining this
2: thing. But you know, you know, he's trying to sort of give like the the Kirk speech, you know. Uh, and and just in this case, it's just like the truth hurts when he says to her, ultimately. You are living inside a hollow ball.
3: Yeah, um, it's just not a good speech. I think I think we've seen some Kirk speeches that are amazing and brilliantly written, and this one isn't.
2: Yeah, most of them uh,
0: are amazing. Not this. Yeah. You are living inside a hollow ball. Your ancestors created it to take you on a journey to a promised new planet. And when she hears
2: that, the pain hits her she's starting to believe it, and the oracle can sense that she believes that she's starting to believe it listen i mean i I get the the this this whole this whole scenario, the scene the uh reveal here is a a little wonky uh in terms of its execution, but going back to just that line about the truth mm-hmm. about being told lies and and wanting to know the truth again, it's maybe a little too subtle for its own good. But I definitely picked up on it this time, you know, and, and sort of try to imagine, imagine what the writers and producers were thinking, you know, back in 68 when this episode was being filmed.
3: Again, this goes to like, along with McCoy's loneliness, this idea that I hadn't really thought about until you brought it up of this relating to how we know what we know about the truth and what we're raised to believe. Those are great themes that don't really come through in this episode. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of touched on. And I also think I wouldn't believe Kirk if he may, if he explained it this way. It's like, come on, you're going. I know what I know. This doesn't seem very believable to me.
1: Why should the truth be kept from us? Why should the creators keep us in darkness?
3: And I wrote down, "Good question," because I don't know why. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: No, no, you do not speak the truth. I believe only the Oracle. I believe.
3: And they offer to remove the instrument of obedience and she runs away.
0: You think she understood me?
3: She evidently understood something. There are no guards to detain us. I don't believe this at all. I really don't believe that she says no, no way, but doesn't call guards and therefore is thinking this might be true. Mm -hmm. She ends up in the Oracle room and the Oracle is scolding her because she listened to the non-believers.
1: The truth of Yonada is your truth. There can be no
0: other for you. Repent your disobedience.
1: I must know the truth of the world.
3: And she goes down, rolling off the platform. I don't buy that Kirk persuaded her of anything, but that is what is happening in the show. And our guy's enter, McCoy goes to her.
1: Your friends have told me of your world.
0: They spoke the truth.
3: Now there, if you know what, this is the thing. It shouldn't have been Kirk convincing her. It should have been McCoy. Yeah,
2: yeah, you're right. It should have been McCoy. It should have been McCoy.
3: There's no way that Kirk persuades her the way he did.
2: But Kirk should have – what Kirk should have done now, or maybe it's a good thing that he didn't because it's become a trope in Star Trek, is that that there's no speech from Kirk where the Oracle – Blows itself up, you know what right. I mean? Uh, because that would have been sort of the thing to do after Return of the Archons and the change. Well, I'm of- glad, yeah, I'm glad we didn't do that. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's good that we did not do that. That really would have, like you know, yeah,
3: <laughs> but if, but yeah, I keep going now. If McCoy had romantically said, I could, ch- I've seen all these things in the world and I could take you there and. This, this is what this world is. I can show it to you from the outside. You have to trust. You know, like it was romantic. Yeah. You know, I've, I I've left everything in my life to be with you. You have to trust me. You know. Right. Then, then I would believe she might
1: be persuaded. The creator's kept us in darkness. There's nothing I can do. I believe with you, husband.
3: And he gestures to Spock, who gives him the little tube, and he takes out the instrument of obedience from her temple. And then they tell him the book is in the monolith.
1: It is blasphemy. You are
0: forbidden. The punishment is
3: death. Thunder! And then the panels start to turn red because we are heating up the room.
2: It's 110 degrees and rising very, very fast. Why doesn't the oracle just zap them? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, and and make. by by turning up the heat, you're also hurting the Tira. But they open up the thing for the book. They take out the book. <laughs>
3: the temperature is now 120 degrees i love the moment where the, where Kirk asks, is there an index <laughs> and he's like yeah <laughs> like, thank god because we managed to find the right page um which has a diagram that says basically push in the middle of the of this uh altar you know the platform moves out of the way door opens and i just wrote down this is all dumb
2: yeah yeah the the way this episode sort of comes to its conclusion uh and and especially the the tag scene, which feels very very rushed, uh, is is a um, it's 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 a part that does not work very well.
3: So we get into this computer room. Spock immediately neutralizes the heating elements, and I like the look at the computers. And again, this is just how to cover your bad writing. Oh, it's not that different from the Enterprise.
2: Yeah, exactly. It it's like, well, that's that lucky. Either. Yeah. <laughs>
3: and they they find out what the issue is, and Spock goes off to check the engines and fix it. This is, by the way, this is where it would have made sense to have Scotty involved. I
2: I like that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. This is where Scotty would have been like, oh, I know how to fix this thing.
1: (laughs) I understand the great purpose of the creators. I shall honor it.
0: You intend to stay here on your
1: I shall stay willingly.
3: This is where I go, this is the theme of, that you were talking about, of I've been lied to by the powers that be.
2: Yeah, right.
3: She just ignores it. Like, oh, whatever. You know,
2: I'm just going to stick with it. Right. It's her her people, right.
3: If she had said, I'm the leader, and with a new passion and knowing what the truth is, this is where we're going to go forward. I would find that more convincing than- I would teach the people the truth. Yeah. Then I'm going to do
0: what the creators wanted me to do. Now more than ever, I wish to search through the universe, to find a cure for myself and all others like me. And I want you to be with me.
1: You came here with a great mission to save my people. Shall I abandon them?
3: I totally get what they're going for. Like the, I have my destiny and you have your destiny, and therefore we can't be together. It doesn't really work for me in this scene, you know?
2: They're they're kind of having the conversation that Kirk would have had with uh, Miramani if Miramani had lived. Yes, because in, in earlier versions of the oh, story yeah. for the paradise syndrome, when it was still called the pale face, uh, there was like, uh, Kirk had Miramani go with him back to the enterprise. And then, you know, she was so freaked out by the technology on the enterprise that she wanted to go back down to her planet. And, you know, Kirk telling Miramani that our child will be of two worlds, uh, so this is almost like the conversation, although in this case, it does not work because it feels very like this. The last few minutes of this episode feel extremely rushed.
3: Yeah, I do like when she says,
1: Perhaps one day, if it is permitted, you will find Yonada again.
2: There was a sort of a, some talk early on that Natira would, would come across the Enterprise again. If they got to a fourth season, but of course they didn't. Spock comes down. We figured out how
3: to fix the ship, and they start to go when Spock <laughs> looks down and sees, "Hey, here's all the knowledge banks of the Fabrini, and they got a lot of medical information."
2: Yep. Again, also feels extremely contrived and rushed. That is,
3: it is again literally Deus ex Machina. That is God in the machine solving the problem that was unsolvable. It's terrible. That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. And we cut to sickbay, and McCoy is on the bed, and he's getting some kind of treatment, and he's moaning, and there's some injections. Excellent, doctor. The white corpuscle count is back to normal. And he's fixed. And that's
2: it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Kirk uh, is suggesting that uh, maybe uh, the Enterprise can conveniently be in the area when the Fabrini descendants disembark on their new world. And McCoy smiles. I, I, Yeah, it's it's kind of such a whatever
3: ending. And I I go back to this moment of have you been lonely? Yes, very lonely. I wish that we were dealing like, like, what do we have in the Kirk endings or the Spock endings? So in the Kirk endings, we see Kirk kind of picking himself up from Miramani from City on the Edge of Forever from all of these episodes. And you know that he's feeling deep pain, but he's going to go forward. Right. Or Spock after This Side of Paradise saying, for the one time in my life, I was happy.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
3: We don't have that moment here. Right. Like There should have been a moment where, you know, you okay, Bones? Oh, sure. Let's just get back to work. And they walk out and he's all alone in sickbay and we see that he's not okay.
2: That would have been more effective. But again, the the last like seven minutes of this episode, there's so much to resolve because they're not going to turn this into a two-parter. But right. they they have to kind of resolve the the situation with the oracle and getting the ship back on course and also curing McCoy of this incurable disease yeah. and and what happens when they cure him? It's just like he's cured and there's like a tease. Oh, maybe we can be in the area when the Fabrini disembark. But you're right. There's no like sort of payoff. There's like. How has McCoy changed from this experience? Yeah, how does he how does he pick himself up and move forward while still carrying the burden of what he just experienced? We don't get to see that with nope. McCoy like we got to see with Kirk and Spock many times.
3: And, well, and this is why I mean we we've reached the end. Um, this is why I have such weird mixed feelings about this episode. What are do anyone else had any interesting feelings about this episode?
2: Well, I think that Fred Freiberger, the producer throughout the third season, echoed your sentiment for this episode, Steve, he said, I thought it was an okay episode. (laughs) (laughs) But Catherine Woodville, who plays Natira, said, I had a lot of fun with them. Uh, It was a happy set. It was somewhat difficult to keep it together with a straight face and do my work properly when I had just been falling around and laughing. They were all remarkable. Oh, nice. So she had a good experience.
3: Oh, that's good. I mean (laughs) – is it a bad episode? No, I don't think it's a bad episode. Do I find it watchable? Yeah, it's totally watchable. There are fantastic moments with DeForest Kelly and with Natira. I think they're really good. There are a lot of interesting ideas, and it's just the more I think about it, the more I just like. Oh, there could have been so much more. That's my feelings. About
2: there, there, there could have been so much more. I think that the they were maybe a rewrite or two away yeah. from getting a better script, one that that had a had a an ending that would have had a bigger impact versus one that just lets us get this let's just get this done already that's what it feels like and unfortunately it does take away from the episode now i still like this episode i still like for the world is hollow i think that there's more about it that i like than what i don't like but there is stuff that i don't like and this this deep dive conversation just sort of accentuates the things that do not work that don't make sense the plot holes the, the questions that you're asking, well, what about this? What about that? But then there are so many great things about it, like the the performances, especially with Catherine Woodville, just the, the friendship moments between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. All that stuff is, is ultimately why I overall like it very much. Actually,
3: Scott, I think I have just one more thing to say. What's that? You, you remember a few minutes ago where you said you felt like this episode could use just one more rewrite? Well, guess what I have?
2: Ah, the Steve Morris rewrite. I so, love the Steve Morris rewrite. Always better. <laughs> so
3: here are the issues that I, I, I was trying to address that we've brought up. One is, and this is the one I couldn't figure out how to fix, is why are they keeping this secret from the people of Yonada? I couldn't fix that. That's That one's still there. But here are some of the other things we brought up. One is love at first sight. That's a real problem, just not believing how they get into this relationship. Kirk, ta- Kirk and Spock talk about Telling everybody what's going on But then they don't do it Why don't Kirk and Spock just try to tell them what's going on Right There isn't really a great ticking clock going on And we both felt that the conclusion Was really rushed And I didn't really believe that Natira would believe Kirk When he just tells her what's going on Right, okay So that's what I'm trying to address Okay. All right. So first off We're down on the in the planet And those tubes open up and we're in a fight scene In this version, one of the Yonatan guards gets injured really badly. And McCoy, who is also injured, sees that he's injured and gets up to go help him because he is a physician. And they threaten him. They're like, stay down. And they put weight. And he's like, no, I have to help this person. And so McCoy, in front of Natira, risks his own life to save one of her people.
2: OK, so far, that so- is
3: that is why she is attracted to him, because she sees this quality of bravery and compassion in him right from the beginning. OK,
2: excellent. Excellent. That's, point. The,
3: that's the first thing. Second thing, the old man comes in, tells his story and dies. And then Natira comes in and Kirk starts to tell her the truth because that's what he said he was going to do. And as soon as he starts telling her the truth, she starts to feel pain. And we see her showing the same symptoms that the old man showed right before he died. And so McCoy stops him. You can't tell these people the truth, because if they know the truth, it will kill them. And that is why Kirk, that's why they go, okay, we have to find some other way to stop this ship. Okay, okay, I like where this is going. So the next thing that happens is Kirk goes, we go back to the Enterprise, and this is something we said before. It's not a year before Yonada hits this other planet. It was a day. Yonada is getting close to hitting this planet right now. Kirk is talking to Starfleet saying, look, my medical officer's on the planet. we got to go. We got to go back down and solve this problem. Starfleet Command says, no, we're solving this problem the only way we can. We've dispatched three Constitution-class starships. We're going to destroy Yonada. You're relieved. Go away. <laughs> so kirk puts the enterprise between starfleet and yonada to protect it this is the ticking clock okay. they're going to fire on the enterprise to destroy the enterprise to save five billion people or whatever that planet is that's so the next thing that happens instead of just mccoy calling and saying hey i have the solution and then passing out McCoy goes to Natira and and says, look, your planet is in jeopardy, I need to save it. And he starts to feel pain and she goes, hey, stop, you're gonna hurt yourself, you're gonna die if you keep going in this direction. And McCoy says, just like he did to save the guard, it's worth me dying to save other lives. And this is the truth, that I've got to tell you the truth to save these lives. And so McCoy pulls out his communicator as he's trying to tell her this, and then it happens just like it does, which is he passes out, but before he says anything to Kirk. So we hear Kirk going, Bones, Bones, are you there? Yeah, On the what... communicator, and he's out, and is looking at the communicator, and she decides to call to talk to Kirk and say, come down here is that it's her choice because it's McCoy being willing to die that convinces her that what they're saying is true.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, I like it. And then it's
3: Natira who is way more active in trying to actually save her people, is that rather than her just being passed out, she brings them into the Oracle room, she opens up the book, she knows how to do things despite dealing with the pain. So she so becomes
2: making her more proactive. For more,
3: sure. more active and more heroic. And then the final thing trying to figure out is, what is the end? And I have two, is that right now they just kind of go, okay, we're not going to stay together. And it's very unsatisfying. McCoy says, if if this were a more modern show, when McCoy says, I'm going to not rest until I find a cure for this thing, that's what you do for the next season of Star Trek is McCoy part of the ongoing story is him trying to find a cure for his deadly disease.
2: Oh, Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Really making it serialized. Interesting.
3: And then the other thing is in one possible version of this rewrite, Natira dies, saving Yonata.
2: Wow.
3: And then you have McCoy have a moment like Spock has had and like Kirk has had at the end of the episode. And they say to him in sick bay, you, you doing okay bones? I'm fine. It's no problem. And then they leave and he's all alone in sick bay. And we think about him saying, I've led a very lonely life.
2: That is a hell of a Steve Morris rewrite. So there you go. There, that, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, everyone listening. What did you think of the Steve Morris rewrite? <laughs> uh, uh, head to our anchor page and support enterprise incidents for as little as $9.99 a month or as much as 9 dollars a month. And, uh, and maybe Steve will write it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so that is what we think of For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. The best place is to check us out on social media. Start with Facebook. If you're a Facebook person, you can search for Enterprise Incidents. You could also go to Twitter where it's Enter Incidents or on Instagram where it's Enterprise Incidents. And of course, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, why haven't you already subscribed to the show? It's very easy to do on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you're there, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can even listen to the show, not watch it, but listen to it on YouTube, where we love getting your comments. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you're interested in movies, my other podcast is The Cinephiles, and my guess is I challenge you to go take a look at the films that we have done. And my guess is we've done at least one or two of your favorite movies. So check
2: out C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Scott, how would people find you? People can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And definitely make sure that you go to our Enterprise Incidents Facebook page where we are constantly posting new things, new podcast episodes, unseen pictures, questions, so we can really engage with you. And we respond to everything. We love engaging with our enterprisers on our Enterprise Incidents Facebook page. So please follow us on Facebook in particular, but you can also support Enterprise Incidents through Anchor. And Steve, how does that work?
3: On every show, we put out show notes, and in the very top of the show notes is a link to Anchor. Click on that, and it'll take you to our webpage there where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. What else can you get for 99 cents a month? And it really does help us to keep the show going.
2: And also make sure you share this podcast on all of your social media platforms. We have been so deeply moved and appreciative for all of the amazing support that we've gotten from enterprisers who've been listening to Enterprise Incidents. But we feel like we still have to get the word out about this podcast so that people can discover and start binging from the very beginning and getting on board with Enterprise Incidents. If you could share Enterprise Incidents on your Twitter platforms, on your Facebook, Instagram, I don't know, TikTok, MySpace, I don't know, whatever you want, just make sure you get the word out about Enterprise Incidents. We will be so, so very grateful. Now, Steve, from the very beginning, when we started doing Enterprise Incidents, I was very excited to eventually get to the voyage that is next on enterprise incidents and boy was that fast because that moment (laughs) has finally come i cannot believe we are this far into the original series we are this deep into the third season but we are at that point where this little squiggly thing flying around in the air is going to feed off of violence to gain strength in the episode that is Day of the Dove, and I'm saying right now, is my number one favorite episode of the third season. I cannot wait to dive deep into Day of the Dove with my great pal, Steve Morris. So please join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly.